Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criteria. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who is my beau ideal. <laughs> Aw, that's very sweet. So I assume if you have more than one, it would be Bo's ideal? Um, Just like yeah, Surgeon's probably. General? Yeah, I don't know why she's... Yeah. Why not just say Ideal Bo? Um, why flip it like that? I don't know. I assume uh, that was only appropriate in like extremely old language. I assume that that is one of the pieces of dialogue that uh, Truman Capote wrote. Okay. <laughs> and because that of sense. that... Because of that, it's very idiosyncratic. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like... It honestly doesn't sound like a real person. No, no, no. Capote is one of those uh, too clever by half people, as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. That's probably not even true of his writing, actually. I, I have no idea. Pat, before we get started this week, I did want to mention one other thing uh, for our oh, listeners. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm trying to sound natural. That's very kind of you trying to sound natural. You're welcome. <laughs> I should have pre-written this so you could sound supernatural. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I'm a great I, actor. <laughs> you are a great actor. Anyway, I wanted to say that uh, a few weeks ago we were interviewed by a fellow named Keith Enright, who runs a podcast called The Criterion Completionist, uh, and his episode with us is going to post in a couple of days after this one posts. I don't uh, recall so... any of this. <laughs> well, it Are wasn't sure? that long ago, but you were um, probably very tired. Uh, I was. And I think you did drink a beer while we were recording. I did, so and that is, probably I was just probably blacked pretty tore up, yeah, yeah. Yeah, completely blacked out. No, it was a great conversation, and we want to thank Keith very much for yeah, it was a lot uh, of fun. asking to interview us. Also, he gave us a really great iTunes review. Uh, so thanks, Keith, for that as well. We need to return the favor. Uh, yeah, we and, should. Uh, yeah. So if you're listening to this the day it posts, you're going to have to wait a couple of days. But uh, September 18th is when he says it's going to go up. Of the year 2016. Go to com for that. Check it out. And listen to us talk some more, because you know. Because I'm sure you're not you're not tired of that already. And Keith's other episodes are really great. They're kind of a, a back true. background on the collection itself, and interviews with uh, other Criterion podcasters, and uh, not people who work for the Criterion collection, but people who are fans and are collecting. But needless to say, we're pretty we're a little <laughs> bit out of his his normal ballpark. But. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. But we did but talk about that and, in the conversation, so. And I enjoyed it. Oh, I, I did too. I know you enjoyed great. it. I know Keith enjoyed it, so it's been wonderful. So thank you again, Keith, and check it out. So this week we're talking about Terminal Station, as well as uh, its other cut, Indiscretion of the American uh, Wife. Uh, so Terminal Station is a 1953 film directed by Vittorio De Sica, produced by Vittorio De Sica. Uh, same as uh, Umberto D, which we watched last week. Uh, Indiscretion of an American Wife is the American <laughs> cut of the film, which God, is a so full. Confusing. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's twenty five. It's a full twenty five minutes shorter. Uh, so what happened? The progeny of this film is that 
Uh, David Oselznik, American producer who we have interacted with before, uh, he is the uh, the producer of the American uh, Alfred Hitchcock work that we watched, Spellbound, Rebecca, um, that we didn't so much like. Um, but he's also the producer of The Third Man, which we loved, which was actually his film directly, maybe not directly prior to this, but uh, just a little bit prior to this, 1949, The Third Man was. Uh, and he was also the producer of The Most Dangerous Game. Which uh, we were not real Which we weren't, <laughs> weren't completely thrilled by. Uh, but, uh, you know. So what we're saying I is love, the man has some I love wins and he has some losses under his belt. I love the third man enough that that, that, win, that win tick is just, like, worth five anyway. Right. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, he's even. Um, but uh, Yeah, I don't know, though. This one was... That, you know, I was expecting... Considering it was missing... Tw- okay, are we? am I okay to dig into the movie? <laughs> you can't. I want to I I say keep a couple going, more keep, things about the background. That's okay. I can hold it. Uh, so what uh, what Selznick did was um, he was working in Europe at the time. His his Hollywood period was over. Um, you know he'd already worked with he said Carol Reed in The Third Man. Uh, he'd worked with uh, Powell and Pass- um, Pressburger uh, in a film I think in fifty one or fifty two, uh, and then he he did this. Uh, he approached Jessica to collaborate on this film, and then. Uh, fought, they fought all the time. They went through um, <coughs> four different screenwriters, finally setting, uh, settling on Truman Capote, who himself insists that he only wrote two scenes that appear in the film. Uh, the opening credits uh, only credit him as writing dialogue, not actually writing the film. Um, but it's based on a short story anyway, so uh, <laughs> dialogue is really all this script might have called for um uh apparently selznick sent to sicka 40 to 50 page letters daily to uh, try and steer the production uh spoke no english could not read these letters and just ignored them (laughs) Which is wonderful, but then he turns in an 89-minute cut that uh, Selznick hates. So Selznick makes a 64-minute cut uh, for American release. And on top of that, because that is way short, in order to bulk it out to a... It's a music uh, video. To a respectable (laughs) 72 minutes. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, The production company put on, yes, a music video. It is... It is a woman in New York, a short called Autumn in New York, singing two songs inspired by the film Indiscretions of the American Wife, uh, called uh, Autumn in New York and Indiscretion, uh, respectively. Uh, So it is just her at a piano performing these songs. Um, uh, Patty Page, I think is her last name, which sounds sounds like a... uh, Sounds like a comic book character from 1960. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like something <laughs> Stanley would write. Yes, it's definitely a Stanley name, which is why I think Just I might be wrong on what her name is. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, um, it was universally panned. 
indiscretion well, of a understandable. Uh, completely understandable, having watched both both versions. Um, personally, I started with indiscretion. Uh, In, indiscretion is no. See, I started with Terminal Station because I was like, okay, I want to see what the real film looks yeah. like, and then I want to try to hunt for what's cut out. Yeah, is what was well, very feeling. clear. What's cut out? Well, you know, uh, it's interesting because I watched them essentially back to back. Okay. Yeah. I, I watched Terminal Station on an airplane, waited like an hour, and then started watching indis- or watching indistra- indiscretion. And it's, okay. and it's, I mean, it's very clear certain parts, but it's also just, it's, it's very strange. Like the pacing is picked up so quickly mm-hmm. that the movie is like some sort of fucking speed rush. Yeah. It's yeah, like, well, I was, oof. While I was watching Indiscretion, the thought I kept having was, I really hope DeSicco, uh is able to make a competent film out of out of what's here. Well, right, uh, but that's, I mean, that's, that's, of that's course, really that's what feels the, like. the idea, right? Like, essentially, Selznick yeah. is, the real question was, to my mind, was, okay, I'm going from Terminal Station, I'm like, okay, <laughs> was what Selznick did with it still an acceptable film? And the answer was no, not really. The answer, the answer is no. <laughs> That's the thing. So he completely recuts the beginning of the film, which undermines our main character Maria or Mary. It undermines her uh, motivation. Right. I mean, that's uh, honestly time. that's probably the most egregious thing that's done. Yeah. Is that beginning? I'd actually, no. I I mean, on like a filmmaking standpoint, that is the most egregious thing. But I think on the emotional thrust of the film no yeah okay i mean what i meant from a from a i did mean from a purely filmmaking standpoint is that like the what he does at the beginning makes essentially the rest of the film not make sense and i agree completely with that so Um, at that point i'm like okay well you just took something that did make sense and then you chopped out the sense part so now all you have is make yes (laughs) exactly exactly what i did find to be uh the more egregious change uh perhaps from a moral standpoint, is that during the scene, during the third act in the scene with the uh, the um, commissioner, yeah. after the commissioner actually sh- shows up and he's reading the letter uh, that the porter wrote, or the security guy or whatever, uh, wrote describing finding the couple uh, in, uh, in the abandoned car. Yes. Uh, The sentence that uh, that he reads in Terminal Station is found a man and woman who were talking to one another. Yes. Whereas the sentence that is read twice in Selznick's cut is found a man and woman who were, and then he trails off and kind of looks at them with with this implication you know, that the letter is describing them doing something much more flagrant. Right. Now, Whereas, here's yeah, okay, go ahead, sorry. Maria's emotional state at the beginning of indiscretion, or at the beginning, of, rather, of, of Terminal Station, where she goes to visit his apartment, can't bring herself to knock on the door, and runs away, implies that that much more intimate moment has already occurred, right? Right. And she's got that emotional investment. They have... this. DeSicca's version never comes out to say it, but they have uh, 
Well, but uh, you know, there's there's a couple. There actually in the Sika's version, there are a couple references that indicate like they talk about what about that night or something like that. Yeah, they, well, they say some things. Like they that. say the same thing in the discretion. Yeah, you know, she says uh, she says if I weren't uh, emancipated, would I have done what I did? Right, that's true. Um, Although I took that to mean as, as I actually took yeah. that to mean spending time with him. Well, yeah, at, that's at that's what she immediately describes is you know allow. Uh-uh allow you to ask me out for coffee. Right. And exactly. Coffee. Whereas in there are some other references I feel like in the DeSica version that are not more specific, but make you a reference, right, I feel like know, tonight or something so that it makes it more clear that, yeah. Oh, like other things yeah. have happened that are more intimate. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the only real indication in Celsic's version that I can, that I can find, uh, is that, that commissioner reading that implying that they had had sex, but we saw them, you know? So, so if we're assuming that that is what's being implied in the letter, what Selznick's trying to sell us on, we know that the Porter is lying, right? That's true. Because we know they weren't having sex. So we know that. So, so what that implies is that, that this is all a, a scheme, a scheme anyway, you know, they're trying to extort money out of her for doing a thing that she didn't actually do. But her emotional response says that she did actually do that in that scene, you know, and there's no editing around that. <laughs> right. That, I mean, that's true. Although I would say that, um, you know, that being true, you know, we, we don't necessarily get the impression from the story that they, had had some sort of intimate relationship, except for, the, I mean, the fact that, like, there's the general air about it that, like, he's trying to stop her yeah. from leaving and some of that, which would indicate yeah. some sort of intimacy. But, like, that that thing at the end is almost... It's almost as though, like, the Sika's version was too explicit in some <laughs> weird way. Maybe, maybe. Like, I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously. It's Even not, though it, it's but, not explicit at all. But, like, but, you know, he says, like, well, I, I mix some water with the wine and some of that, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we see, like, I mean, we you, you're right, we do see. But I also wonder, dealing with Hollywood at this time, if, like, you know, yeah. that's supposed to tell our audience that they were doing it. Well, they were sitting in the dark and they were kissing. Obviously, they were right, like, having sex. But, you know what I mean? Because yeah. you were dealing with a time period in which we're like, okay, we have to telegraph this information without actually showing you anything. Mm-hmm. Because that woman can never have any clothes removed. Neither can he. You know, <laughs> yeah. they're in the dark. They're kissing. You guys all know what that means. Kind of thing. Yeah. Right? A little wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing. That being said, the Sigas version is much more interesting. Because it puts us in a position that we know what happened. The porter knows what happened. Porter wrote down yeah. actually a exactly slightly what <laughs> exactly what happened with a little bit of a change to actually make it a little bit less. Yeah, he even actually favors them. That's what I'm saying. Right? It's like honestly, like yeah. even if they went to court, it could be. I mean, he literally wrote down, "We're talking." Yeah. So they could be like. I mean, if she decided not, if they decided not to pay the bribe, you know, it's yeah. like we were talking. And of course, uh, that would be bad, but that's its that's its own scandal, right? Right, because but it, it is a lot less that. worse than, or it's a lot less worse than kissing, obviously. Yes. Um, and you know, but in that sense, the 
the DeSica version ends or lends a lot of reality to what's happening, even though it's a it's a drama. Yeah. It's a much very much a melodrama. It's still yeah. It, it ends. Well, it lends it a certain reality because combined with the rest of the film, it feels like naturally what would happen. Yes. Well, one of the other things, obviously, DeSica it's Italian neorealism, and one of the other things that happens in DeSica's version, as opposed to Selznick's. Uh, is that Selznick edits out about 90% of the background detail. Yeah. All these other interesting characters that are happening even Who really make the film in a lot of ways. really make the film, yeah. That, that, that put this as a film, you know, Terminal, uh, Terminal Station is about Terminal Station as much as it's about... Oh, yeah, because uh, when you consider the else, fact that... Because it's about, Everything that's going on at the station. Right. It's about everything that's going on, how she interacts with everything that's going on, how everybody's sort yeah. of interconnected within the realm of this yeah. environment. And frankly, how that, takes how that what creepy guy with the oranges keeps showing yeah, up, hitting on women. <laughs> yeah, he's not as creepy when he only shows up fucking once. Yes, exactly. Which I think he only shows up once in Selznick's version, right? I, I only remember seeing her him. because I guess yeah. Selznick literally couldn't have edited him out. Apparently. In that version, that and, phone know, call has to take place, right? And, so. and it would be really weirdly disjointed if it didn't cut to something. Yeah, um, but <laughs> I, he cuts. I don't think there's any of the other scenes where he's harassing other women. No, which makes him I recall. a weirdo, but makes him a lot less meaningful yeah. as a as a character. Which, in the which story. also makes the the old man who stands on the chair or whatever to stare at them in the commissioner's office. Also makes him like just a weirdo, right? I mean, he, he was already and he's already pretty right? weird in right in Desica's version, but at least he's got background information. You know, he asks what's going on before he just shows up and stares at them. Right? Well, he does in the uh, in the Selznick version too. Does, does he? I, yeah, I must have. Yeah, we just don't see him anywhere else in yeah. the in the Selznick version. And yeah. you know, I mean, but there's a lot of that sort of stuff. Like we see in the Selznick version, we still cut to the kids. But I'm not even. I don't actually remember her giving the candy to the kids. Oh no, he in the Selznick She definitely version. did that in the Selznick version, right? I which makes them, them a really weird cut. It's like, oh, here's some poor children eating <laughs> some chocolate. You don't know what this means. No, no, they. It showed her giving did, them. Did the I couldn't remember this because it's hard to separate the two, honestly. But well, I the mean, other thing in that way that that entire sequence is cut different, very differently in the Selznick version too. Um, I went back and, and specifically compared because it's about the halfway point in both films when uh, when she takes the, the pregnant woman to the first aid station right. and has the conversation with her husband and then buys the chocolate for the kids. See, um, I just couldn't remember. I remember all the, the sequence of going yeah. to the hospital and everything. It's just sort of like, yeah. um, because the film, the film, the Selma version felt so rushed. Yeah. That like, it's almost a, a, Despite, you know, it's only 20 minutes difference, but that 20 minutes is not yeah. a 20 minute scene that was cut out. It's a, tw it's 20 minutes of every detail. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And Spice that's out. especially true for that sequence in both films, I think. Um, whereas, uh, in Selznick's version, um, Giovanni showing up and interacting with a, with a, with a couple of other people, um, is intercut to them with her while they are still in. Um, it's just all it's it's much tighter. So it's while while she's in the um, waiting room and then while she's in the first aid station. Whereas everything that Selznick cuts into that 
has already happened before they leave the uh, waiting room into Sika's version, and then he has other interactions in the intercuts through the rest of the scene. Right. Um, you know, he runs into a, a bride, a bridal party, and uh, has a very brief moment connecting with the with the young bride herself. Right. Um, and it's which is weird too because it's because her husband clearly thinks that they're flirting, and I'm not entirely sure that they weren't, but. Uh, that's one thing. Selznick version makes Giovanni just feel like a clingy asshole, right? That's true. Although, honestly, the Sigurds version like, only kind of doesn't make him feel like a clingy not, asshole. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty like, that's a pretty straightforward uh, description of him anyway. But, right. uh, Selznick's version makes him seem even more coarse as a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. Although, the Sigurds version does give us enough information that we, we, we evolve over time to just really, really despise him. Or at least, I mean, by the, by the time he slaps her, I already don't like him. And yeah. Well, because after by that, the time he actually slaps her, he's already talked about how he would slap well, her. Well, right. Well, actually, that's one of the only notes I took. I have this weird internal dialogue from watching this movie where I'm like, oh, okay, well, so I noticed that he only talks about her beauty as to why he wants her. It's very fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's fascinating in a gross way, but he has no deeper reasons for why he's, you know what I mean? He never expresses any deeper reasons why he, for why he's interested in her. Like she talks at times about him emotionally in a, in a way that yeah. deals with him as a person. Whereas he never does. He never talks about anything except for how beautiful she is. Yeah. As to why he was interested in her, why he wants to keep her. And then, and then like I go, like I have this weird thing I wrote, which is like, like I wrote, Let's be together. Don't worry about whether I'll beat you. You'll figure it out soon enough. And then about a minute later, oops, I guess <laughs> you have to, I guess you have your answer. Yeah. I was like, this oh, is no. gross. Like it is super gross. Um it reminded me a lot of uh ways of uh, summertime, a movie we watched very early in the in our project here. Yeah. Um which is again, I tried to remember um, summertime. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, in that it has it has very uh, very similar plot oh, okay. line I in that it is okay. an American no, housewife, an American housewife who is uh, better dressed than her character should be. Yeah, um, uh, who has an affair with a uh, with a uh, Italian man, though though actually in. Uh, in summertime, she is not married. He is married, and that's part of what she she finds out that he's married and and puts an end to things. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, so it's it's it had some similarities and made me think of it. But but mostly in that uh, Audrey Hepburn, um, not Audrey Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn in summertime, um, is also just not at all. Not at all the character that the movie wants to portray her as. Yeah, she's she's meant to be an Akron, an Akron school teacher, but she's still Catherine Hepburn talking in Catherine Hepburn's voice. Right. Whereas uh, this one, we don't we know nothing about what her husband does, what Mister Howard. All does. we know is that she's from Philadelphia, but she's from Philadelphia. Which already does. She's drive. a housewife, and yeah, it doesn't really jive. <laughs> like the whole setup really doesn't make. No, any sense? Which which is unfortunate. I mean, I get what he was going for, but like, you may, you it makes you wonder, like, well, who picked Philadelphia 
And then who decided that this made sense? <laughs> yeah. Like, and why are her, why is her family, why is her family in it? It's really confusing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Her sister her, lives in Italy. Uh, we know nothing about her sister's husband, but her kid seems to have kind of a, was raised too much, with too much money attitude about life. Yeah, so. for sure. Combined with just a general disdain, I think, for Italian people. <laughs> so somehow her, her son feels slightly, or her, her nephew feels slightly racist. Um, <laughs> kind of all the time. Yeah. Bigoted. We'll go with bigoted because he's both classist and racist, so. Yeah, yeah. Just general bigotry. Uh, don't blame that kid. Uh, though to be fair, uh, the one guy he really hates does deserve it. That's true. So. That's true. But I mean, you know, he, he, he says some stuff that yeah. you're kind of like, okay, Mr. 12 year old, how'd you get that idea? <laughs> But then again, that's the only way it would make sense for a nephew who clearly doesn't speak any Italian. Yeah, how long to be to be wandering around Italy? It doesn't make any sense otherwise. And I love the throwaway. Like everyone's, all the Italians are very poorly dubbed in this movie. Yeah, it really, it really. That's my first note. Wow, the poor dubbing. Um, but you know, but, it, uh, it it jives with like spaghetti westerns and stuff. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's that classic. Like, well. Our audio equipment sucks, so you just talk. We'll add it later. Who cares? <laughs> yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, our male lead here uh, just gets a – Cliff gets just a throwaway line about how his mother was an American to explain how he speaks perfect English. I know. That's hilarious. I loved it all. Like, I, I loved all the, like, sort of weird, like, contortionist movements we had to get to make this happen. It's a quick hit. This I, is an American film, so everybody needs to speak English. Hmm, I but I also do. do love, I do love that they bothered to say something about it. Like, like it <laughs> right. would have been, it would have well, been just I, as easy to that, ignore it. I like that they they worked it into the story in a, in a fairly reasonable way. It wasn't like, you know, what I mean, it, it, it was semi organic. It wasn't like, yeah. So Cliff, <laughs> you told me earlier that your mother was a was an American. But honestly, based on the relationship her father, his father and her mother had, I'm going to guess that Cliff wouldn't actually get the opportunity to learn English. I'm just going to go out and look here. Well, well, that is one that based in on the sickest version. Uh, in the sickest version, at least we get a conversation about how his mother and father really loved each other. Uh, but also get an indication, and this one's, this one's done subtly, so I like it, uh, perhaps an explana- explanation for his... Uh, Speaking English, uh, the fact that his father's never at home. <laughs> That's true. You do make a good point there. His father, he's a, he's an abandoned child, basically. Yeah. Uh, his father's always... We do get that in Selznick's version. He does mention that his father's always at... Because it all blends into that one weird conversation where he essentially threatens to beat her. Um, yeah. It's just... Because of the way it's spliced and everything, it's just so rapid. The, yeah, the, it's the, easier to the miss the Selznick version starts to turn into a weird like, like, like I don't, uh, Aaron Sorkin film or something like that. It's like it's so <laughs> fucking quick. You're like, what is going yes. on here? How did they get on a red carpet? What's going on now? Oh God! Like, it's, I, and like, like an Aaron Sorkin uh, film, everyone is saying exactly what they're thinking when they talk right, right. because there's no room for nuance. In, right, we don't have any Selznick's time for nuance version. or. 
like even people demonstrating that they're thinking about what they're saying before they speak. Yes. Uh, we don't have time for thinking. <laughs> Let's do a walk and talk. Do a walk and talk. There isn't a lot of walk and talks in this film, so they they've got that over. Uh, that's over true. Guy. That's true. There's no there's no Dutch angle walk and talks. That's always good. Over over Aaron Sorkin. Um, I don't know if the uh, I don't know if the technology to do a uh, filmed on location walk and talk exists. Yeah, that, that sounds rough. It probably involves it some, been pretty some rough. pretty weird, especially if you're a uh, you know you know was it Italian realist like. I, I'm I'm gonna guess certainly the second did not have such technology to shut down because we do get some station. We do get moving dialogue. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm being I'm being a sea fish. But like, but, but but you're being a sea fish, okay? Yes. But you know, I it, it is. I'm gonna guess that Desica never had the power to like shut down a train station. No, probably. Yeah. Um, no, no, I think probably. You think so? I mean, this is like, this is DeSica probably at the height of his... Right, but did, is DeSica at the height of his power train station shutting down at all? That's my question. Or did he get like sections of the train station that like, okay. Maybe. We're, I think there's... We have this room, we have this area for an hour. Oh, and that, and that, and the third class passenger area is still going to be full of people from third class passengers. I think it's clear <laughs> with Humberto D uh, that, uh, that part of Desica's vision of neorealism is, you know, to to allow whatever's happening around the film yeah, production to that. happen. Um, but at the same time, there there seems to be a lot of control in this film. If this film it does, I mean, I'm going to guess Orange Guy is not a real person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If this was if this was just being shot uh, as the train station was still functioning, I I think there'd be a lot more. Uh, insanity going on. That's true, I just think true. it would be too crazy for for the product to even. Well, it's just it's kind of made. just even fascinating to me that he that he was able to even get that yeah. to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just it's just a fascinating because it, it, it takes place in a it, it's shot at a real train station. So yeah, it, it tells. I us guess a lot we're of assuming that things. it was shot on nope. location. Obviously, it says it's all, in the intro title point. of. At least the Selznick version. It says shot on. It says like basically the equivalent of shot on location. I don't remember what they say. They use some other weird phraseology for it, but yeah. it does say. But it does say that it was shot, shot on location. location. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just I can't. They some other terminology was used, but it was yeah. it very clearly was, which is interesting because you know I mean, it was not, it had a nice feel to it. You know, even Selznick couldn't take the sort of ambiance of the train station itself out of the film yeah. because you know it's in every background yeah. but he did I mean, it's a very dramatic the, looking building so. yeah it is and that i mean that's the thing and like the only thing i found is in both versions the geography is baffling to me i cannot figure out where the hell i am at <laughs> any given time which i know is not always the most important thing but in a film where like essentially she's trying to avoid him to a certain yeah, extent for for a good chunk of the film it's yeah. like hard to figure out like is he getting close to her is he not getting close to her did she walk by this room i don't think you know some of them when they hit landmarks like the third class passenger area the first class yes. passenger area the, the eventually the, we start to understand where things are right but in like the, all uh, the train like tracks the themselves are like what's going on yeah. here yeah yeah 
I think just because <laughs> train making train tracks like immediately identifiable on site is really challenging. And then and then when she and Paul have the conversation and it's echoey. Um right. which is which happens in both I have no idea where they are or where they are compared or, to any why it's echoey. They are, or why it's echoey. Yeah, no idea either. <laughs> yeah, there is way too much reverb for for that conversation no matter no matter where they are but is an unrealistic amount of echo we're in the echo room <laughs> apparently maybe there all is italian an train room. stations have an echo room maybe maybe that's just something we don't understand about italian society at the time <laughs> i like to believe that i like that this is where it's like we, you know, we've encountered this problem before in, in films and like i like to believe echo rooms is totally a thing yeah and we echo rooms it's, it's a echo thing rooms and running marches are just two things that <laughs> italy was really about italians <laughs> oh gosh we just can't understand as modern day americans running marches i love that like every <laughs> italian film we watch has that in it it's just like as a matter of course it's just something fellini loved apparently well but, but like this one didn't have running marches but it did no. have men on parade it did have like, does every parade. italian film have to have been on parade is this a thing men uh italians just like to uh have parades i like to believe it is a legal thing i <laughs> believe there's a law that there must be men on parade in every film it's probably Maybe. like one of those like it's like, like the classic sort of like thing that we read about in america where it's like oh somebody made this law 250 years ago and we all sort of forgot about it but everybody's <laughs> following it for some oh so you can't have ice cream in our pockets and everybody has to be there must be one group of men on parade in every film yeah, yeah. Maybe. Even before films existed, they passed this. Fall. Every play had to have men on parade too. Maybe that's the problem. You know, we read about movies not getting released because they were uh, the politics of of the country. Uh, you know, a movie was anti-French or something. You know, we talked about one a couple. <laughs> no Western cinema could ever come out in Italy because doesn't feature men on parade. Yeah, whereas, like, the Italian Film Bureau or whatever just considered it anti-Italian if there weren't men on parade in the film. <laughs> so this, like, I like to believe which is it. Why they're all, which is why they're all in double step in Fellini's films, because he was so fed up with having to He had to get them in and out of the scene as quickly as humanly <laughs> possible. <laughs> as quickly as possible. There we go. We've stumbled upon it. Yeah, we found it. We found it. It's beautiful. <laughs> we figured it all out. It's like, I assume it. I assume We're it's on some, like, Mussolini, the jig is like, up. leftover Mussolini, like, Italy that, like, well, we changed all the laws, but for some reason, this one's still around. <laughs> it's just a fascist carryover. Yeah, like, I couldn't get rid of it for some reason, so here it is. Film not approved. No men on parade. <sighs> terrible. Terrible. Think of all the beautiful cinema that never got released. <laughs> it's just a company that sells stock footage of men on parade that they can just interject into any film for you. Not approved by the film bureau. We'll help you. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, Jennifer Jones, our main character here is Selznick's wife. Uh, oh, of part course. Of, part of what he wanted to do was to, uh, provide a vehicle for her. Um, and then hack it to pieces. But uh, but her two kids were at school in Switzerland at the time of this recording. Uh, her first husband had just died, she... and she was just generally depressed the entire production. Yeah, but that works. Yeah. Uh, Montgomery Clift, who plays Giovanni, hated Selznick's version, said he completely gutted uh, the the emotional 
uh, failed uh, failed affair that that uh, Desicca's version portrayed, uh, which isn't exactly true because they both end the same way. They both end with the affair falling apart. Right, but the, the so yeah, but I would agree with him in the sense. I mean, it's still there. I mean, that that yeah. point is still there. But like the, the well, he the accuses Selznick, Selznick of of trying to make a generic love story, and it's not that's not necessarily true. Well, because they is... don't end up together in either version, right? And in he, fact, he, it's, I, I, I almost f- feel like in Desicca's version, they have they have established more promise that they might be together. Um, yeah, but I would also argue that the Desicca version gives her more, also provides more reasons why she's not, yeah, going to stay. Whereas the Southern version, it all seems very weirdly torrid and quick. Yeah, and and I think I agree with him in the sense that. Because of that, the Selznick version doesn't feel like a failed love affair as much as a failed fling. Yes. Whereas the Desica version reads as, like, these people fell in love. Or at least she yes. fell in love with him. And they're still up debating him, him with her because of yes. the fact that he never states any, what I would consider, legitimate reasons for loving her. But she's just, she's just this pretty lady who's right. into him. So, of course, he's into her. Right. Um, but in the, in the end, the result is is that theirs feels more like a parting than the Selznick version does because the Selznick version doesn't give us a feeling like people who are in love are leaving each other. Yes, and I and I would so I would agree with him in that sense because, but like I don't think that Selznick was making a more generic love story because of that because his feels so torrid that it's almost kind of gross, and I don't think that kind of love story flies in this era of American cinema. Yeah. Like the story of, you know, flings in a foreign country are probably not, probably not the, the, the things that people want to watch at this time. Um, but at the same time, it's also not, it's always escapism, right? Right. There is, but I mean, I don't feel like we've watched a lot of movies that are about flings. Yeah. Circa this era. We watch movies about love affairs, but flings is, you know, one, Basically, Selznick turns it into a one-night stand is what it feels like. Yeah. And that just knows... I don't think that flies with an well, audience still, of this era. At least he still establishes... He starts with the letter, right? He does. That she writes. He does. Um, so, you know, that implies some emotional connection, but not not nearly as deeply as the way Jessica starts the film, um, obviously. Uh, but it still implies some, some something more than just a one night stand. You know, she's not running into him for the first time at the at the uh, train station. No, right? no. But right. I mean, it does feel, to a certain extent, like with the way she, you know, she has the letter in the Selznick version. It's actually a weird mixed bag because the Desica version, we get to watch her write the letter. Yes, and. The way she tries to blow him off with the first few versions of the letter almost yes. feel like like she's blowing off a one night stand. Yeah. She's like, uh my my kids are sick. My dog died. <laughs> I have a rash. Now, I mean like it's not real, but like I mean the first Yeah, and it's even sick. it's even implied later when she talks to Paul that, that no one's actually sick, right? No, no, everybody's fine. Um, Everybody's fine. She's just trying to blow him off. And and it's interesting because it's possible to read that as there's no emotional connection, but it's also possible to read that as like she just can't actually deal with her feelings. So it's easier to just avoid them entirely. 
Um, but you know, we don't get that in this. I that not having some of those scenes like that letter writing scene in the Selznick version just ruins well, it yeah, for me. It's just, it just absolutely it's just ruins it for me. The little the little connecting details, you know. Selznick's version functions on these big moments. Uh, this is a conversation I actually had with uh, with infrequent guest Stephen Goldmeyer uh, today about uh, problems with the new Ghostbusters film and with uh, Batman v Superman. Um, that uh, that those little connect the connective tissue seems to be the first thing to go in the modern film editing. Right. Um, so that if you actually watch the director's cut of Batman and Superman, um. It makes more sense, um, not because not because uh, Zack Snyder made a better movie, but in that editing it for the wide release, um, and Snyder made all those edits too, right? This isn't like this isn't a Selznick thing where the producer is taking over because the director was deemed incompetent, um, and same is true for Paul Feig and uh, and the Ghostbusters film. Uh, you know, you get those little connective tissues that hit the floor in order to have more room for the big moments. And that's really what's happening with the Selznick version, even though um, he's got no reason <laughs> to shorten it as much as he does, you know, because he shortens it well, it's to just such a, a little It's a weird thing. It makes you wonder, yeah. why did Selznick hate the Sega's version so much? I don't... Yeah, that's the thing. Because I, don't I watched it, it. And, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed what I, I felt this... I mean... I, I'll admit that the the very beginning, when we start seeing the random elements to it, it took me a while to yeah. adjust to that mm-hmm. style. But by the time we loop back around and we've got them all coming up again, I'm on board. Yes. And I don't. It's really hard to understand. Like, what was the problem with this film? I mean, it was not too long. It was not boring at any point. Um, and in fact. I would say that, like, both, I mean, both versions, I mean, obviously Selznick's version, because of the way he cut it, feels so frantic that it's pretty intense. But even the Sika's version is is intense in all those moments where you're like, where you almost start going, like, why won't you just leave? Like, and some of those, you know what I mean? Like, but it's not out of the frustration one feels when one is, like, tired of a movie dragging on. It's that feeling of, like, you just want this woman to, you know, finally... <laughs> Do what she says she's going to do. Yes. And, and, commit, and like, stop being drawn back. Because, you know, at least for me, like, I start... It, it's a weird feeling because I start watching it and start... I don't know that this is necessarily the feeling you're supposed to have, but it's still the feeling I get. Um, that, like, you start getting these feelings. Like, she keeps getting drawn back in. And you're like, look, lady. You just need to, like... We both know man up that you need to cut it. this man out of your life. Yeah, you need to get, especially when we get, by the time we get to the scene where it's like, he's basically threatening to beat her. It's like, okay, yeah, you just need to get the fuck out, lady, okay? This is not yeah. going anywhere. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's one thing that, that both versions, I think, successfully do in painting the affair as, as this fun adventure thing. You know, and in fact... Uh, I don't think that it comes up in indiscretion, but in Terminal Station, she actually def- describes it to him during the where they're sitting down at the restaurant during the scene where he eventually says, uh, "Yeah, I'd probably hit you." Uh, she actually it defines it as this adventure right. I th- I that think she thought she could tell her that, sister about, that yeah. she might even write her husband about. Right, absolutely, and it, it's interesting because so very much in her mind that it's a it was a 
fun adventure that got out of hand. Yes. Whereas, the, the, yeah, you're right. The Cells version mentions fun adventure, but it doesn't explain, it doesn't go into detail what that means. Like the Cells yeah. version where he's, she explained, or no, sorry. The Cells version doesn't go into detail the way the DeSicker version does about like what a fun adventure actually means about being able to tell her husband and yeah. you know, write her sister or, you know, all that, you know, all that stuff about. I thought I was just going to have fun with this Italian guy for a couple of days around town and he would show me all the sites or whatever. Um, it's just, you know, and, and that's fascinating because it really, you start to understand the anxiety in, especially in the, in the, the sicker version, you understand her anxiety, anxiety a lot more. I mean, you understand even in the Selzane version because there's that whole just general understanding that an extramarital affair is going to create this anxiety and trying to escape from it and put, reorient her life. But in the, the sicker version, you can feel more strongly like how she never intended for any of this to happen, which makes the anxiety more intense. And makes our our desires an audience for her to just escape from it stronger. But yeah, yeah, it's just like you said. I don't understand what Selznick yeah, no, saw in the really sickest version. To, uh, it's yeah. hard to imagine. It really yeah. is. Like what? What was he? What did he watch? And then be like, I hate this movie. And seeing seeing what is dramatically removed. You know, the small interactions and, and I guess to cut out all those small interactions and all the background characters and, and everybody, you know, who fleshes out this world means that Selznick approached Desica because he respected Desica's work without ever actually understanding what made Desica's work good. That, but that, as far as Hollywood um, producers are concerned, which that's is probably not surprising. true. That's not that surprising. He probably was like, oh, I'm. My wife is in Italy. Yes. <laughs> Who's a famous Italian director? I want I want to take my wife to Italy right. and write it off. Is basically right, yeah. I, I think I what happened. To, it, she, so she pulled a uh, the Adam Sandler effect, which is yeah. where can I take vacation? Yeah. Oh, and apparently, well. apparently, uh, from what a, from the information on Wikipedia, they were not in a very good place with their marriage at that point. Anyway. Uh, having only been married married less than two years, and uh, it was kind of rocky, you know. Plus, obviously, as I already said, she was emotionally devastated by the fact that her two children from her previous marriage were away at school in Switzerland, and her her uh, previous husband had just died. Um, you know, if she's if she's emotionally distraught because t- because of ties to her old life, that's going to take an emotional toll on on her current marriage too, right? Right, and but so. I will say that it works. Her her emotional state works very well to make <laughs> yes. terminal station really great. It'll it'll get her it'll get her in the right mindset pretty easily for uh, for what's going on here. So yeah, it's hmm. there is the trailer for Indiscretion of an American Wife on the Criterion DVD as well. Ooh, I didn't even uh, see that. It is it is two minutes long, uh, and it is it makes the movie look even more ridiculous than it is. <laughs> okay, uh, because it is intercut with newspaper headlines about as as if this is a uh, a scandal being played out in the press, where 
American housewife and and lover uh, arrested at train station. Uh, there's one that pops up that says, uh, uh, station officials blame lover for delayed train or something like that. Cut to him on the scene where he runs across the tracks to get to her because she's across the other side of the station. <laughs> Such a disingenuous advertising. <laughs> it really is. Um, so, yeah, there's like, uh, but it's it's three or four different newspaper headlines popping up to try and suggest that this is this big international press scandal uh that it it wouldn't be you know there's some without her being famous or something yeah the commissioner said something about it um you know if if this were to get out it could ruin her life and that might be true but it's not like it's going to be an international scandal. No, even it would only ruin her life legitimately if somehow the news got back to her yeah. husband. Because yeah. it would have to be translated out of Italian. Yes. And then like brought to his attention. Yeah. This is no... I mean, it might be like a, a line item in a in a gossip section in the back of a newspaper. In <laughs> but, yeah, it would, like, yeah. It would but it's be not really... going to make it to Philadelphia yeah. uh, on the front page of the paper. In English. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's a really... Yeah. Somehow, somehow that trailer, which I also assume Selznick is behind, oh, makes it even more <laughs> more ridiculous than, uh, than Selznick's own version of the film. Um, which I think, I think I'm glad that that seems like to be an afterthought. I'm glad that Selznick didn't think of this whole newspaper scandal angle. But, you know, it makes you wonder, well, in all those 50-page letters, is that what Selznick was asking for? <laughs> things he bought to put in. Oh, goodness, I hope not. Like, if, if, he if, if that is letters. true, that he wrote 40 to 50 pages of notes per day, what? That's the entire script should have been under 50 pages. For what we're seeing. Right. What it makes me think is that like, the reason why the Sicka's version got, like, slash the pieces is not because Selznick specifically hated the version that came out, but just out of a sort of like <laughs> anger that it was not the version that it went, you know, it was not what his possibly like thousands of pages of notes actually told the Sika to do. It may just sort of be that pride thing where it's like, no, that's not what I asked for. Yeah. And maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe the fact that, uh, Selznick's notes were obviously ignored because Tasika couldn't read them anyway. Uh, put him, put him on edge, and put him in line for revenge. Yeah, I, and I, that's that's what got to it. I think I so. Would he not he be took out the he took out the most Tasika moments of the film, the Italian daily life stuff, and the uh, the emotional establishment for her character, which 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 shouldn't be like a Tasika. Uh, specific, but, and I. But yeah. honestly, I would say that my guess would be that I. I would be even surprised if it were that deliberate. Yeah, my thought would probably be like I asked for this m- movie about this scandal. Yeah, I'm going to just hack this thing to pieces because I didn't get what I want. Yeah, and try to like possibly build that thing I asked for out of it. Yeah, and fail because I don't have the material to do it. Because he'd already, yeah. That's the that's the one thing you know. Uh, today, and we talked about Ghostbusters. We talked about 
uh, Batman v Superman. You know, with digital productions today, you can have multiple takes and multiple uh, multiple interpretations of a scene and shoot the same thing. It's one of the problems with digital. Uh, and one thing that actors complain about with digital is that you can shoot uh, because you're, there's no conservation of resource. Right. You don't. You can shoot the not, same thing yeah. seen a hundred times in a row uh, with no breaks. <laughs> uh, I bet you have directors who do that on purpose just to wear yes. the yes actors yes. down. But. Uh, whereas uh, this film seems like uh, you know it seems almost like. Selznick started with DeSica's version of the film instead of with any raw material. Uh, then he added some of his own raw material, but not very much. But it seems like he started with DeSica's version and cut down DeSica's version. Instead I'm pretty of sure that's what happened. Editing honestly. his own version from the raw uh, from the raw material. I wouldn't be surprised if Selznick didn't probably never got the original. Just yeah, there's reels. a good there's a good chance that you know the original raw material was already recycled or or, or destroyed or lost, uh, or just didn't exist because you know, maybe there was. It's only also one. possible that Sigurd is just such a tight captain of his ship that like there's just basically yeah, no edits. also possible. Um, I mean, I think you you see that more in certain types of like I feel like in certain European types of film that we've encountered before where it's like, oh, there's no editing because I shot what I needed. <laughs> like, and it's here. And editing is for people who don't do a good, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we've encountered that with other sort of like, uh, you know, um, new wave films and stuff like that where it's like, oh, we didn't edit this because we shot what we wanted. Yeah. So I wouldn't terribly surprise me if DeSica were one of those people where it's like Selznick just had nothing extra to work with, period. Like, I've got this film that was made, and that's what I've got to work with. So it's going to go from 89 minutes to 64 minutes. <laughs> it's not going to be a feature <laughs> Because I've got to do something. Yeah. Uh, I'm maybe, going to throw on a maybe. couple... I'm going to be ahead of my time and throw on a couple music videos at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to invent VH1 just so that I can pad this movie. I mean, David Selznick probably deserves uh, to be known for how famous, to be famous. Uh, But what we've seen him, what we've seen from him in the Criterion Collection, with the exception of The Third Man, which was a brilliant film, period. Um... You know, it's just not, I'm not impressed with, with what he's produced. But, I mean, that's the thing about producers, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I I know they probably do exist, but I, I'd be hard-pressed to name a producer who always produces good film the way that a good director can be reliably good at making, directing yeah. good films. You know what I mean? I yeah. feel like produce, producers, it's almost a non, it's almost like a non-title. It's like, you know, whenever I hear, you know, because you know, right? Whenever you hear like produced by, and then it's a famous person, you're like, mm, I probably shouldn't care about this. <laughs> you shouldn't care about his connection to it. Right, because Whereas, he had no effect uh, but, on it, or any effect he had on it. But the problem here is that Selznick seems to want to have a very deep effect on everything, right? That's true. 
you know, the problems we're hitting here, the problems he hit from what I read was the uh, Palin Pressburger, or Palin Pressburger film that he made just prior, the problems we hit with the Hitchcock films are that he wanted to be much more hands-on than the directors wanted him to be. That's true. But I think, but that's what I mean. It's like, ultimately, a director is a director. A yeah. producer only ever gets this kind of crap, where it's like, I'm going to use the influence I have to edit this shit in a weird way or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that means that, like, it's just such a much more unreliable title. It's, a, it... it yeah. You know what I mean? Like, even though Selznick wanted to be hands-on, very clearly the director could just ignore him. <laughs> yes. Because DeSica managed to do it without even trying. He's like, oh, more of this, more of this crap. And just like, I guess, threw it in the fire. <laughs> I don't know. Like, why is this man writing me so much crap? I can't read. Just toss it in the fire. So yes. what, what I mean is, is, like, the producers, even when they try to be influential, like, like let's look at, like, when he his influence on Hitchcock. It's much the same way in that, like, Hitchcock was going to do what Hitchcock wanted to do. Yeah. And there was probably almost no way he was going to change that. And so a lot of it comes down to editing, where obviously the producer has the ability to change things before they're actually widely released, especially in these in this era. But that being able to do that doesn't automatically give you the power to make it a good film. In fact, it seems to apparently only give you the power to make it a bad film. Whereas being the director gives you that power automatically to shape the film in a way. I mean, you can still be a good director who gives a shit script, but, you know, which we've seen before. But, um, you know, in general, that director has that power and the producer just doesn't. He's working with scraps and leftovers. Yeah. At most. Yeah. And he's, he's not exactly fashioning into anything that isn't just a scrap and leftover right and and so the result is that like producer is just basically a, 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 a yeah it's an important title because it makes the movies happen in the sense of in the financial sense but yeah in the actual like skill sense no i mean producer is meaningless basically yeah you would think that that given the control selznick is seen to exercise uh that he would have more of a talent for this. Right, but that's what we've learned. Is he's actually not very but good But what at we've this. learned is when he exerts that control, things start to fall apart, right? Right. So why is he famous? It's, because it's, he I got lucky on the ones... There's a few he didn't exert that control over. Yeah. That are amazing films. Well, I don't know. I have to, I'd have to go back and read, like, read about The Third Man. Maybe he exerted a lot of control over The Third Man. I don't know. It doesn't seem like he did. And so there you go. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's that, I mean, you can become famous for shit that you had no control over. Yeah. We know yeah. that for which a fact. Is, which is the great thing about being a producer, you know. And, you know, I, I wonder then how much, let's see, 1939 was Gone with the Wind. And he produced Gone with the Wind. And he probably got an Oscar for it. Because um, I think everyone got an Oscar for Gone with the right. Wind. <laughs> um, but, uh... Uh, so maybe that, I don't know that that's what put him on the map, but I can imagine that it was. And if that's true, uh, then he probably had a lot of goodwill <laughs> built up. Um, right. And, but, and, you know, combine that with like, you know, there is, I assume in producers, a certain talent to picking promising projects. Yeah. And like pulling together a promising team, like getting a good director combined with a good script. There, I mean, there's a skill there. 
The problem yeah. is when that producer, it seems like, especially in Selzin's case, when that producer decides that one skill is can be equated to another skill. Like, oh, yeah. I'm good at pulling together these teams and, and making sure what, you know, something comes out of it. Oh, I must be good at basically some sort of weird backseat directing. And, yeah. and, you know, that's, I mean, that's, people do it all the time where they equate, you know, one skill to another and it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, maybe ultimately, I don't know. I'm looking now and I can't, I can't find any information about how much control Selznick exerted over Gone with the Wind, but it might be telling that I know that Selznick was the producer of Gone with the Wind, but I can't name the director of Gone with the Wind. Yeah. So, <laughs> But that, that again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It just means that maybe he found a way to impart the notion that he was the most important figure in the creation of Gone with the Wind. Yeah, doesn't necessarily mean that was true. It just means that also, was what we, you know, came to understand. Yeah. I just remembered one other difference in Selznick's version to the Sickas. Uh when uh, when Mary is first on the train. And the the crowded family uh, offers her space in her in their room. Um, there are the two young, attractive Italian women walking down yeah. the uh, yeah. the hall that Selznick keeps in, despite it being one of those small world details that Desica added. Uh, but Selznick also adds a wolf whistle. <laughs> Someone whispered. Yeah, I noticed that. I was like, wait a minute. Whereas Desica does not have that in there. <laughs> Desica's, Desica's sexy, sexy girls are just sexy on their face. Whereas right. Selznick has to sell us that everyone thinks they're sexy. Yeah, I mean, apparently Selznick, Selznick apparently does not like think the... that Americans would find that blonde woman attractive. Like, I think, like, basically Selznick in a lot of ways is like a precursor to, like, your, you know, uh, you know, your Michael Bays and stuff. It's just like, maybe. It's like it's like if he could put a, an explosion in this oh, film, man. I bet if he would. If there is ever a sentence that we have uttered on Lost in Criterion that will anger anyone, yeah. I think David O. Selznick is a precursor to Michael Bay. Might just be the <laughs> worst thing we've ever seen. Well, that's what we do. This is how we. This is how we roll. I'm just saying, like you know, I mean, that's given, sort of given stuff. the product here. Given the product here, I think that's accurate. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're not at like. We need lens flares and explosions, and yeah. everything needs to be, you know. But he is—he is adding stuff to oversell what he's left in, and he's cutting out a whole bunch of stuff that would have subtly sold. Right. It, it, it is a lack of understanding of the, of yeah. the subtle art. Yeah. And, and it, you know what, though, and I gotta say, it is, it is funny that so we quick. don't know off the top of our head who the director of *Gone with the Wind* is, because this dude is super famous. <laughs> Let me he also read directed, you, okay? uh, He also directed Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yeah. but he also directed, like, um, for example, um, uh, the version of Treasure Island that most. I mean, it's not the version people yeah. would know now, but it is a version that people would have known very well then. Yeah, yeah. He I did. Mean, he did a lot of uh, very competent uh, studio work through the mid-century, right? And that and that's probably the biggest thing is it's studio work. And and, yeah. and directors during that era had a lot of harder time, I think, trying to shine because yeah. you know it's, it was the actors and then it was the studio itself. Yeah. Um. So I mean, the dude is 
knows what he knows his shit. <laughs> like so, obviously, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he's got you know, fifty Oscars to his name too, right? Well, so. and it doesn't, it doesn't help that you know he died in 1949. So like, oh, there you go. Yeah, you know, he did Gone with the Wind, did like what, like three other movies, yeah, five other movies, and then he's done. I mean, he's gone, he died, and so it's like, well, of course you don't remember him because he he did something super famous. Yeah, as one of his last. Yeah, to, and it's not. It's one of his last works. And if he's always doing those big studio productions, there's nothing really artistic to tie his name to, right? Like I can't, I can't name the director of a lot of right studio no. films that I've seen and enjoyed. You know, exactly. Because no one's, they weren't auteurs by any means, but they also weren't, you know, famous for their directing style and directing style. You know? Right. Having seen both. Gone with the Wind, and uh, you know, Gone with the Wind, uh, Wizard of Oz, Captain's Courageous. There's nothing in those films that tells me that this guy had a certain eye, right? Right. So, but anyway, I probably should know his name. It's Victor Fleming. No, it's not Victor. What is it? Yeah, it's Victor Fleming. Yeah, I'm looking at Victor it right Fleming. now. Fleming. No, it's just interesting because you say there's no, he doesn't have a specific eye. I know we're going way, way, way yeah. off the beaten path here. But I would say that if you look at Gone with the Wind and you look at Wizard of Oz, these films, what we think, imagine of that era of film, is basically, in many ways, this guy. Yeah, they're big sweeping things. And, and, and in that regard, you know, maybe... Uh... No, Cecil B. DeMille is 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 another studio director who who shoots that sort of big sweeping thing, and right. it's actually a name you recognize. So yeah, it's just interesting. You know, I, it's just, it's I a just weird thing that like we don't, don't know Victor Fleming's name. <laughs> no, off the top of our head, but you know, in, in yeah. for all intents and purposes, we should probably probably ah uh, well. That was a trip down something that has nothing to do with what <laughs> to the, with this only only very, tangentially has something to do with this movie. Loose tangential. David Selznick, uh, precursor to Michael Bay, I think is really That's really what you need to take away from this conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he did hack apart a, com- a very well done piece of work and yeah. add in a bunch of shit that we don't need. At least, at least he did not ratchet up how fast things were happening while simultaneously extending the film by three hours. <laughs> Yeah, because I thought that's what I was saying is like he had yeah. not figured out the fine art of adding explosions <laughs> to love films. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. There's a, there's a there, that, that, that's a that's a you know that's a 21st century art, a yes. late 20th, uh, early 21st century art adding explosions to films where they don't belong. Exactly, exactly. Oh, now, well, thank now, you once again. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Thank I was just imagining uh, Michael Bay traveling back in time and teaching Selznick <laughs> how to do that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. This week we were talking about uh, two films, uh, Vittorio De Sica's collaboration with David O. Selznick uh, to produce uh, Terminal Station, which Selznick then hacked apart into Indiscretion of an American Wife <laughs> for an American audience. Uh both coming out in 1953. Uh, next week, we'll be starting a trilogy box set of the works of Rainer Werner Fassbender, what is referred to as his BRD trilogy, uh, though as near as I can tell, the films are unrelated except in time and place. Um, we'll be kicking things off with The Marriage of Maria Braun next week. We look forward to that, and we'll see you then. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oritari Dorgan. 
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Hosted by Pat Dorgan and The Adam Glass, who also edits it down. Jonathan Hape did the music. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com. Look for us on iTunes. Or reach out to us at facebook.com slash lostincriterion or lostincriterion at gmail.com.